The Bob Murphy Show, episode 287. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy well 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 everybody we are going to geek out on this episode so to set the stage, back on episode 229, which was published on February 4th, 2022, I had Steve Patterson on. And the title of that episode was, Bob Murphy Admits Steve Patterson Was Right About the Problems with Infinity. And specifically, the springboard for that episode was something that's called Riemann's Rearrangement Theorem. And it had to do with a quirk certain types of infinite series, when you add up their elements, weird results come out. So I had Steve on to say, you know, Steve, I knew it's been your position for some time now that the way mathematicians introduced the notion of infinity, you know, as a limit, like it's not a, a number per se, but just the way mathematicians handle the notion of infinity leads to absurdities. That was something Steve had been saying for a long time. And I was dismissing him. Just in general, his critique of math I thought was silly. That you know, oh, come on, Steve, you're out of your element, Donnie. That kind of thing. But then when I encountered this Riemann's rearrangement theorem, I was like, okay, yeah, that is crazy. If the way mathematicians deal with these concepts allows this result to stand, they must be doing something wrong. And so then I had Steve back on, and we chortled about how much wiser we were than all the mathematicians from Cantor on down. Okay, so believe it or not, I got, well, I don't want to say the most, put it this way. I cannot remember there being more pushback on an episode than that one. And Steve himself said he gets more pushback when he criticizes math than when he talks about religion. Like People are more dogmatic about math than they are about whether you're saved spiritually. So for a while, and this was totally my fault, I just kept putting it off, but I wanted to bring somebody on to sort of give the defense of standard orthodox mathematics and Ian Dieters rose to the challenge. So let me read just a bio of Ian just so you know where he's coming from. And then what I'm going to do is have a long excerpt that I gave at the beginning of episode 229 where I just go through and explain what Riemann's rearrangement theorem is. All right, so you don't, I'll, I'll give you a, a hint on the timing of that in a second here so you can skip it if you want. But since that is such a central element, even almost in a sense, even more so for this episode, 287 that you're listening to right now, because Ian is going to basically defend higher mathematics from the charge that there's something fundamentally wrong with it because Riemann's rearrangement theorem is nutty. And so any discipline that would allow that must be crazy. That's kind of what Steve and I were saying back in 229, and so Ian's going to come and defend math. All right, so first let me just read Ian's bio, and then, like I say, I'll, I'll give you a heads up on how long the tutorial is. Ian Dieters holds a PhD in theoretical mathematics and complex and functional analysis 
is an associate of the Casualty Actuarial Society and leads the data science team at MedPro Group, a medical malpractice insurer. His current area of research is the application of theoretical mathematics to provide the foundation for machine learning, the unification of various machine learning methodologies, and a movement toward the creation of models which are simultaneously precise and explicable. He may be contacted through his website at www.iandeters, and that's D-E-T-E-R-S dot com. So now that I've given that formal introduction, we're going to have a, an interlude. Is that the word I want? It's, it's basically 40 minutes. It's 39 minutes and change is the portion that I'm excerpting. It's not plagiarism because I'm stealing from myself from the previous episode and recycling it here so you don't have to go look it up if you don't want to. If you don't want to go look it up, but you want to have it right here is what I'm saying. Just forget me to go through what Riemann's rearrangement theorem is. By the way, just, you don't, what am I trying to say? It's really cool in and of itself. So if you like math and if you don't like math, then skip this episode altogether. Like <laughs> you're not going to get anything. It's not like we talk about, I don't know, Rothbard and capital theory and private defense companies or something. No, this episode is all about math. So if you don't like that, that's okay. But this isn't going to be your cup of tea. But if you do like math, make sure you listen for this explanation of Riemann's rearrangement theorem if you haven't heard it before, because it's mind-blowing, right? And so that is roughly 40 minutes if you want to try to skip ahead if you don't want to hear it. Ready, go. Okay, so likewise, now I'm saying what I had thought mathematics was free from that because I thought it was so logical and rigorous that fallacies couldn't creep in there because they would be identified. They would stick out like a sore thumb. And yet, to me, it seems like there's something that, you know, that I would say it's a contradiction. And hence, the mathematicians should have realized, okay, we made a false step here. They don't think that in general. Okay, so with all that prelude, let me go ahead and start giving you what you need to understand Riemann's result. Okay, so first of all, let's talk about a finite series or a sum, I should say. Okay, so just think of this. One plus two plus three plus four plus five. What does that equal? It equals 15, right? You can do it manually in your head or you can use the trick. I think Gauss developed this trick when he was like a little kid in school that you can go to the halfway point, which is three, and then multiply it by the number of digits, which is five, right? Because you can like take two away from the five and move it over to the one. So it's a three on the left and a three on the right, and then take one away from the four and move it over to the two. So that's a three and then a three, right? So if you want to do one plus two plus three plus four, all the way up to plus 100, or you can do 101, you do the same trick. You find the mid, the mid number, and then that's what they're all going to be on average, and then multiply it by the total number of numbers, and that's how you get the sum really fast. Okay, so there's an anecdote that Gauss, the teacher, gave the kids some busy work, you know, and said, okay, everybody, take out your little slates and, you know, and your chalk or whatever, and... I don't know if they use chalk or coal. Who, who the heck knows? But they did something back then. They didn't have iPads, that's for sure. Tell me the sum of one plus two plus three plus 100. And so all the kids are sitting there, you know, and the teachers, whatever, doing some opium or whatever they do. And little Gauss is just looking out the window, thinking about stuff. And then he just writes down the answer on a piece of paper and, and goes up and hands to the teacher and he's right. And the teacher's astonished. Like, How'd you do that? And he said, well, because I just pictured it in my head. And I realized I could, for each number going left and right, I could just take some from the right one and bring it over so that 
you know, it would just be the same number added a hundred times. And so then it was just a hundred times that, right? And so specifically just so you're going to, so one up to a hundred, the midpoint is actually, because there's an even number. So there's not one number that's the midpoint. So you got, it's like in between. So what's one up to 50 is the first 50, right? And then 51 up to a hundred is the second 50. So the midpoint is actually 50.5, right? Because like if you're picturing it in your head, like one plus two plus three, okay. And so then he realized, okay, so on average they're 50.5 and then there's a hundred of them. So it's 5,050 is the sum. And so he just did that, just picturing it in his head for a few seconds and then went up and said 5,050. So if you sit there and manually add them up and did it right and didn't make a mistake, you'd get the same number. But, you know, he did it very elegantly. And apparently, the, as the anecdote goes, the teacher was like, go back to your desk and do it the right way. <laughs> Which, you know, this, who knows why that actually happened, but that's hilarious if that's what happened. Welcome to the world, Gauss. Okay, so anyway, back to what I was saying. That was sort of just a tangent that wasn't necessary for this episode. So one plus two plus three plus four plus five, you can, you know, do it manually or you can just say, oh, three is the midpoint and three times five is 15, right? So that's what it equals. So now I want to say to you, if you agree that 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 equals 15, what if I rearranged those numbers? Like what about 1 plus 3 plus 2 plus 5 plus 4? So it's the same numbers. They're just in a different order. What does that equal? And I think you'd agree it's 15, right? So you can do it manually and check it, but also just the nature of how addition works. What is that? The commutative property? You know that the order shouldn't matter. When you rearrange the order of stuff you're adding together, that doesn't change what the sum is. Okay. So what Riemann general, again, it's not that he discovered this per se. Other people had discovered instances of it. And then Riemann kind of came up with a general theorem to show the big picture of what was happening. What Riemann discovered was if you have infinite sums, right? So series that go on forever, like sequences of numbers that you're adding together, and under certain conditions, even though in one particular order, the numbers add up. Well, let me go ahead and state it. If what you have is an infinite series and it consists of positive and negative numbers, and if you just looked at the positive numbers, it would go to infinity. And if you just looked at the negative numbers, it would go to negative infinity if you added them up. But if you combine them, so that they sum to a finite number for that kind of a series, which is called conditionally convergent series, you can rearrange its terms and make it add up to any number you want. Okay. So it's not just that by rearranging it, you can come up with a different number. It's that you can tell me ahead of time, what do you want this series to add up to? And I can tell you the number, the target, and I can rearrange the terms in that series such that they add up to that number. Or I can say, rearrange the terms in such a way that they don't add up to a finite number, that the whole thing added together goes to infinity. Okay, and so that would be like saying, in a finite context, that would be like saying, one plus two plus three plus four plus five equals 15. If I re, you know, then now you tell me, what do you want those to add up to? And then I can rearrange them to add up to that number, right? So it's not just that if you rearranged it in a certain way, it happens to be a different number. Imagine if I could make that sum be any number you wanted just by rearranging the terms a certain way. So you would realize that would be crazy, right? That no, no matter how you rearrange those terms, it adds up to 15. 
So it's one number, let alone an infinite number, you know, meaning uh, that I can make it add up to anything I want. Okay, so again, let me just state it again in words. What Riemann discovered was if you have an infinite series with the following properties, so it consists of positive and negative numbers, and if you just looked at the positive ones and added them together, it wouldn't be finite. It would go to infinity. If you just looked at the negative numbers and add them together, they would go to negative infinity. But when you combine them in the same sequence or series and you add them up that way, they converge to a finite number. All right. And so, and then what the term for that type of a thing is called a conditionally convergent series. For that thing, for anything that has those properties, Riemann said, you tell me what you want that to add up to. And then I will show you how to rearrange the terms in that series, right? So he's not adding in different numbers. He's taking that series as it is and then just rearranging the terms, the order in which you add the terms up. That's all he's doing. He's not putting in new numbers. He's not pulling up. He's not removing numbers from it. He's just taking the existing set of those numbers that happened to be in a particular order originally that added up to some finite number. And then he's saying, what do you want it to add up to? You tell me, you tell him ahead of time. And he says, okay, here's how you would get to that number. And I can just rearrange these terms to give, you know, here, here's the process, the procedure you would use, the algorithm to take that sequence, you know, that infinitely long sequence of numbers and rearrange them in such a way that when you add them up, you know, the way, how do, how do mathematicians add up an infinite string of numbers? Well, there's a way, and we'll talk about that in a minute. When you add them up, it yields that number you just told me. Or if you say, you know what, can you rearrange this same sequence of numbers, just change the order in which we add them up, such that when you go to do it, you say, you know what, this doesn't converge to a finite number. It just gets bigger and bigger without limit. He said, oh, we could do that too. You tell me, what do you want? All right, so that's what his result is. And I'm claiming, if you let that sink in, what he's saying, to me, that shows there's something crazy going on with the way mathematicians handle infinite series or, you know, adding an infinite series and the definitions they use to say, what does it mean to say this is the sum of an infinite number of numbers, okay? Or a string of numbers that has infinitely many elements. And so this dovetails with the kind of stuff Steve Patterson's talking about. That's one of his points that when mathematicians started incorporating notions of infinity and started doing arithmetical operations on sets that contained an infinite number of elements, as if, oh, it's like finite, you know, it's like doing stuff on a finite number, except we're just going to let it go on forever. And what would it look like if in principle, we just did this same procedure forever and then it yields a result. And Steve is saying something's goofy going on there because it pops out absurdities. And so normally in math, this is me talking now, there's proof, like things called like a proof by contradiction. But if you want to prove something, one way of doing it, like you, you want to prove X, let's say whatever X is, some, some statement, some condition. One way of doing it is to say, let's assume not X and then use the standard rules of logical deduction. And then if we can generate a contradiction, that means not X must not be true because you shouldn't be able to generate a contradiction in math. And so then you say, okay, because we've just shown if we assume not X, it yields a contradiction. Therefore, we can conclude X must be true because if we assume not X, our heads explode and we don't want that to happen. Okay. And so I'm saying here, likewise, it seems to me mathematicians are admitting, okay, 
these procedures we use or these definitions for what does it mean to add up an infinite sequence of numbers or infinite series and come up with a sum to say that is what we mean by saying this is the answer for adding up this infinite number of members of this set allows you to say, oh, for certain types of these animals, when you just rearrange the order of their elements and add them up again, you get a different number. The answer is different. And again, I want to stress here, it's not that it's infinity, right? Because there's weird stuff that goes on. Like you might say, like, let me give an example. I could say one plus two plus three plus four plus five, da, 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 forever. What does that equal? Well, it doesn't equal anything. You could say it's boundless. You can loosely speaking say it equals infinity. Technically, that's ungrammatical. You would just say the limit of that is boundless. Okay. Loosely speaking, you could say it equals infinity. Okay. Now, what if I double each one? What if I say, what's two plus four plus eight plus 16? Or wait, no, I'm, I'm doing that wrong. Two plus four plus six plus eight and so forth, right? You're, you don't, I'm like doubling each element. I'm doubling the original thing, right? You could do that. You might want to say, oh, that equals two times infinity, right? Because each element is twice as big as the original one. So if the original one adds up to infinity, then the second one should add up to double infinity. But infinity is infinity. What's two times infinity? It's just infinity, right? So you might think that that's the kind of semantic trick that we're playing here. And like, oh, yeah, Bob, when stuff, you add up infinite stuff, weird things. And that's not what's going on here. So I want to be clear. What I'm saying, what Riemann found is much weirder than that. Because these, yes, these series do have an infinite number of elements, but it's not that they, quote, add up to infinity. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you can have a series that the standard way that mathematicians talk about what does it mean to add these numbers up in this particular order, it comes up with a finite number. You know, it comes up with a zero or logarithm of two or whatever. And then they say, okay, so it's not infinite. It's not infinity. The things add up to a finite number. And then they're just saying you rearrange the order of those elements and add them up again using the same definition that mathematicians use for what does it mean to add up a list of infinite numbers or an infinitely long list. And there's a different answer that's also finite. Okay, so that's weird. <laughs> and I'll leave it at that in terms of the stating what it is. Okay, now let me just give you a little bit more. We'll just go for a few more minutes here just to warm you up so you can kind of see a little bit more concretely how this stuff works. Okay, so... What about if I just start adding 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 plus 6 da, 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 forever? Clearly, that does, you'd say that diverges. That's what the, the language they would use. Loosely speaking, you could say it equals infinity, but again, that's not really grammatical. You'd say it tends toward infinity, or you could say any finite number you pick, no matter how big, I can continue that sum. You know, I can continue that, that series out and eventually... I will be bigger than that number. So you could say, well, what about 60 quadrillion, quadrillion, quadrillion? If I continue that one plus two plus three plus four long enough, and I could figure it out for you if you wanted, at some point, I would have, even with just the partial sum, not taking the whole series, but just some of it, I would have exceeded 60 quadrillion, 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 or whatever number I said. And I could do that for any finite number you pick. I can always just keep going on that plus, plus n, plus n, plus one, plus n, plus two, da, 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 da. And eventually I will surpass that number, the, that ceiling that you picked. So that's why you would say that series diverges, right? It does not converge to a finite sum. Okay. What about one plus one plus one plus one plus one forever? Similar thing, right? So there, 
So notice in the first one, each element gets arbitrarily big. So let alone, you know, adding up that plus all the previous elements. But even if the elements themselves just are finite numbers, well, even if they stay below some threshold, so like one plus one plus one plus one plus one never gets bigger than one, but you can see adding that up forever, it, it, it diverges also. Okay. And now try a different one. What about this? One half plus one fourth plus one eighth plus one sixteenth plus one thirty two plus da, 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 forever. Right. So each time I take one over and then it's, it keeps doubling the denominator. That adds up to one, the way mathematicians define these concepts. Okay, so strictly speaking, you'd say the limit of that series as n goes to infinity is one. And that's what it means, loosely speaking, to say one half plus one fourth plus one eighth plus one sixteen plus one thirty-two forever equals one. And it's really easy for that one. The reason mathematicians use that a lot to get these concepts across is because it's really easy to picture it geometrically. Just imagine a square in your mind. And then at first, and you're moving from left to right. So at first you shade in the left half of the square. And that's one half. You've just filled in one half of the area of that square. Now, so now you get your picture in a square where the left half is shaded and the right half is still like open. And now, so that was the, that was the adding the one half. Now you're going to add the one fourth. And so that's half of the remaining area, right? Because it's one half of one half is one fourth. So of that remaining empty space on the right half of the original square that you just fill in half, again, now cut that in half and fill in the left half of that part. And so now you've just got the rightmost one-fourth is still open and the left three-fourths is now shaded in. And now oop, you're going to color in one-eighth. And that's, again, half of what's remaining. So if you're thinking of it that way, you keep doing strips that are always one half of the remaining area of this square. It's still needing to be shaded in or colored in. And you could just keep doing that forever. With each step, you just keep filling in one half of the remaining empty space. And so you can see how if you did that forever, what does that mean? If you did the infinite number of steps, eventually, you know, so you got to be precise here. It's not that you would ever actually fill in the full square because you would never complete the process but you can make the remaining empty space arbitrarily small. And you'd say the limit as n goes to infinity of doing those steps, you know, one at a time discreetly, is that the total sum of how much of that square had you colored in would equal one or 100% of the square. Or you could look at it the other way and say at any given time or any position in that sequence, how much of the square remains unshaded and that thing would shrink to zero eventually. That would be the limit, to be more precise. Okay, so there you can understand the sense in which if you're, you know, if you pictured that, the sense in which mathematicians think that one half plus one fourth plus one eighth plus one sixteenth plus blah, 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 it converges to one. That's the precise statement. And then loosely speaking, you say it adds up to one. That's what they mean. Okay. Now, let me throw another curveball at you. You might think, oh, okay. So what happened there was each extra term that we added on, right? So first it was one half, then it was one fourth, then it was one eighth. Notice that those things get really small and they go to zero, right? The, the bigger it gets, you know, it gets to be one, the, one over 1,024, one over 2,056, that thing gets really, really small. And so it kind of makes sense that as you keep adding 
constantly shrinking things to the number, the, the total, the sum of all those things added up sort of converges to a finite number. Like there's a ceiling above which it can never rise. And that's what it means to say it converges to a finite number. So that's a necessary but an insufficient condition for the thing to, to if it's all positive numbers, to converge. Okay, so and what, what I mean by that is you can come up with examples where the numbers you keep adding do shrink to zero, but still the sum itself has no bound. And the most famous one is what's called the harmonic series. So that's one plus one half plus one third plus one fourth plus one fifth plus one sixth da, 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 forever. That thing, even though the individual terms get arbitrarily small, right? Eventually it's like you're doing plus one over 17 trillion, which is a very small number. Even though each little thing that you add to it gets microscopically small, nonetheless, that whole sum diverges. Okay. And I'm not going to prove it. There, you know, there's a lot of elegant proofs. You want to look this stuff up. I'll obviously put some links, folks, at, you know, at bobmurphyshow.com slash 229 for some of this pure math stuff on Wikipedia and in other places if you want to see it spelled out more formally. But what it means to say it diverges is you give me any number you want, no matter how big, you know, 60 quadrillion. And I can show you if you just keep doing plus one six, plus one seventh, plus one eighth, plus one ninth, at some point that sum will be bigger than the 60 quadrillion or whatever number I said. Even though you might think that, no, that doesn't sound right because they're shrinking. Well, you've still got an infinite number to add. And, you know, loosely speaking, intuitively, if you want to say, well, the reason those are different is because the one, you know, when it kept getting cut in half, it was like shrinking faster than when you're just, you know, making it go down by N as opposed to two to the N in the denominator of each term, right? So the plus one fourth, plus one eighth, plus one sixteenth, those shrink faster than the plus one and a half, plus one third, plus one fourth, if you think about it. And so, you know, if that's the intuition you need to kind of help make that make sense to you, fair enough, okay? But again, whether it makes sense to you or not, the, the way mathematicians use these results or define these concepts is that one half plus one fourth plus one eighth plus one sixteenth, that adds up to one. Whereas one plus one half plus one third plus one fourth plus one fifth, blah, 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 forever, that doesn't add up to any finite number. That gets arbitrarily large. And so that you could say that diverges. Okay. So now we got some of those concepts under our belt. And this is all standard stuff you would learn in a, you know, calc, calc sequence. Okay. So now that you've got that, again, let me restate now what Riemann's rearrangement theorem found. So if you have a series that consists of positive and negative numbers, and if you just looked at the positive numbers, they would diverge. You know, there would be no upper bound on it. You would add them up and they could always exceed any finite number. And then you also had negative numbers that if you added them up, they would diverge the other way, that there's no lower bound. You know, you could pick negative quadrillion, 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 and yet you keep adding more terms of the negative ones of this original series. Eventually, it's going to be smaller than that. But when you add them together when you combine those two different things into a particular sequence, if that added up converges, well, that the, the label for that is called, it's a conditionally convergent series. And 
what Riemann found was, or proved, is that for such a series, you tell me what number you want it to add up to, and I can take that existing series and just rearrange its terms and make it add up to that number. Or if you want, you can say, I want it to diverge, the, like the originals, the series itself, not just the positive and negative components, but the whole thing we added together, positive and negative mixed up, or, you know, put into together with each other. I want them, the way mathematicians add up an infinitely long series, to not have an upper bound. Like I want to go to go to positive infinity. You can do that too. All right, and that's what he found. So let me now just give you a particular example just to make sure you understand how this stuff works. Okay, so consider this infinite series. One minus one plus one half minus one half plus one third minus one third plus one fourth minus one fourth forever. Okay, so again, I'll say you start with positive one, then minus one. Positive one half minus one half. Positive one third minus one third. You see, you just keep doing that forever. So that series, the the limit of that, as you you know do the partial sum, you take any finite number of elements in that series and add them up, you know, yield some number, and then you take the limit of that as n goes to infinity. That sums to zero. Okay, and so notice, you know, because every other term the thing sums to zero. And then if you think about it, like the amount that it exceeds it one way or the other gets smaller and smaller, right? So you start with, you just do the first term, it's one. Then you add the second term, which is minus one. Now the, the, the partial sum goes to zero, right? Because it's one minus one is zero. Uh, but then if you do the third one, it's one half. So now it bumps up again. Uh, but then if you do the fourth one, include that, now it's minus one half, so it's back down to zero. So notice you keep doing that. The partial sums go like one zero, one half, zero, one fourth, zero, or, or sorry, one third, zero, one fourth, zero, one fifth, zero, as you keep adding more and more terms. And so you'll notice that that, that partial sum gets smaller and smaller. Well, it's alternating. It gets either zero or the other thing. And so the limit of that goes to zero. And so that's the sense in which that original series converges to zero. Okay, but notice it's conditionally convergent, right? So if you just looked at the positive elements of that, it's one plus one half plus one third plus one fourth, right? And we already argued, I didn't prove it to you, but I'm telling you that's a harmonic series and that diverges positively, goes to positive infinity. And then likewise, that thing with just negative numbers in front of it diverges to negative infinity. Okay, but yet if you arrange them in that particular order, like I said, where you go one minus one plus one half minus one half plus one third minus one third, it's pretty intuitive to see that thing, quote, adds up to zero. Okay, so now here's what's weird. Up till now, things might have been fine for you. You might have said, okay, yeah, that thing adds up to zero and I can see how that works. Sure. But now you probably would have thought if that thing adds up to zero, if I rearrange the terms, it should still add up to zero. And yet, that's not the case. So here's a particular way to rearrange it. We're going to take that original list of numbers, and we're going to, it's going to be the same numbers constituting this new list. It's just we're going to change the order of them. So specifically, what we're going to do is we're going to take two positive numbers at a time and then one negative one. Okay, so we're going to take that original list and just pull out the first two positive numbers, then pull out a negative number, 
then pull out the next two positive numbers, then pull out a negative number and so on and add that thing up. And notice it's, it's the same set of numbers, constituents, elements. It's just the order is different. And you say, well, how do you know it's the same number? Because every number in that second set that I construct came from the original one. Like you, you can, there's a one-to-one correspondence. That's like a more formal way of saying it. So every number that was in the original list, we know is going to end up in the new list. And every number in the new list, we know had a corresponding member in the first list. So it's the same set of numbers defined by its elements. It's just the order in which we're adding them is different. Okay, and so specifically in case you're getting lost, this is what the new sequence looks like or series looks like. It's one plus one half minus one plus one-third, plus one-fourth, minus one-half, plus one-fifth, plus one-sixth, minus one-third, and so on forever. So again, that's the same set of numbers in the first list. It's just we're changing the order. Instead of going one minus one, plus one-half, minus one-half, plus one, we're just taking the first two positives. So that's why it's one plus one-half, then the first negative, which is negative one, then the next two positive, which is plus one-third, plus one-fourth, then the next negative, which is negative one-half, and so on. Right, so it's the same again. Every number that's in that new list or series that I'm listing was in the first one, and going the other way, every number in that first list is in that second one. And notice, there's no duplication; it's a one-to-one correspondence. Okay, so now if I just, you know, without context, told you as the and you had been trained in math to say, hey. The series one plus one half minus one plus one third plus one fourth minus one half plus da, 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 which is that second one we constructed. What is that? You'd say, well, if you just looked at the positive numbers, it diverges to positive infinity. If you just looked at the negative elements, it diverges to negative infinity. But if you add them up all together in the particular se- sequence or order that you just listed them in, it actually converges, conditionally converges to the natural log of two, which you know you write out as ln two. Okay, so obviously me just talking to you guys, I'm not going to totally be able to show you that, but that's what it converges to. The natural log of two, which is not the same thing as zero. The zero and the natural logarithm of two are different numbers. Okay, so that's just one example where we're saying, you know, and so what, what Riemann showed is this isn't just a rare thing for any conditionally convergent series. You tell me what number you want it to add up to and I'll show you a way that you can rearrange the elements to add up to that number. All right, and again, that would be like, in a finite context, that would be like saying 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 equals 15, but 2 plus 3 plus 1 plus 5 plus 4 equals 7. And that would be crazy. And yet, that's what happens with conditional and convergent series. Okay, so I will stop there. That's enough of a math primer. And thus ends my recapitulation of Riemann's rearrangement theorem. And so we now proceed to my conversation with Ian Dieters, who will defend mathematics from the aspersions cast upon it by Steve Patterson and myself. Ian, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Good day, Dr. Murphy. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So it's been a while since I had Steve Patterson on to talk about infinities, but at the time there was a larger than finite amount of outrage 
at it. <laughs> Lots of people were mad. Like it was funny. It was like people were mad. And I told Steve that he's and he even alluded to that in his he did he in the did, discussion yeah. that, that he said people get more mad about that than about religion even or politics even. So right. Anyway, so that's and Ian, I don't know if I do. So the what I w- will have done, the listener, that that whole beginning part of the episode with Steve, where I go through and explain what Riemann's rearrangement theorem is, I will have included that here for people who want it. So they already have that in their back pocket. Yep. So I know you had come up with an extensive interview (laughs) of, or sorry, outline of what we're going to go through here. Yeah. And so uh, let me bring that up on my end. I suppose maybe just, can you briefly, I would have already in the introduction too, given some of your background, but do you, can you maybe just tell a little bit like biographical or autobiographical? Yeah, sure. Just about where you're coming from. So people know, and like too, also too, like, are you interested in libertarianism and Austrian economics? Yeah. Well, after the interview with Patterson, I got a call from Klaus Schwab and he said that, uh, <laughs> you know, that they're coming after the academy now, not even mathematics is trustworthy and go do something about it. And so that's why I wrote you the email. <laughs> so yeah, it was an interesting thing because you had casually mentioned to me, oh, I'm doing an episode on something mathematical. Why don't you listen to it? Tell me what you think. You know, okay, sure. Mm-hmm. So I sat down and like most, I assume it's the same for you. Most podcasts, I listen to them while I'm doing other things. I actually literally couldn't. I mean, I suppose I literally could, but I mm-hmm. had to keep stopping and taking notes <laughs> because as Patterson suggested, there was outrage, but I try not to be merely outraged. I try to do something constructive about it, which is why I wrote you that dissertation of a, of an email in response to try to explain some of the, the finer points. But my background is in mathematics, so I have a PhD in theoretical math. I am a an associate of the Casualty Actuarial Society. I work as the lead data scientist, medical malpractice insurer. And the things in which I'm interested in terms of research is the construction of mathematical models, in particular statistical models, which are simultaneously explicable and precise. And so those are the things in which I'm interested. And with respect to Austrian economics and libertarianism, absolutely love that stuff. You know, gone through human action, gone through man economy and states, love Thomas Sowell, anarchist for life, (laughs) all that good stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, great. It's interesting because, you know, there's a sort of stereotype that people are attracted to Austrian economics as they're not good at math. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, in going back over some of the material for this, I recalled some of the things that you said in times past, though, that you actually compare the output of Austrian economics to things like geometry, where you say, you know, these things are mm-hmm. true. They're deduced from first principles. And so I think that there's, I think that there's more crossover than perhaps is say on the surface, but I will, it, I am sympathetic in a certain sense to the tone of the show with you and Patterson because of the fact I know it, it's sort of like in uh, Jurassic Park when, when he says what evolution is the most incredible thing known to man, but you wielded like a child who sought his father's gun. You know, I, I've seen that attitude with statistical models and whatnot. So I understand that, but I, I am convinced that with sufficient conversation, there's, there's a great deal of application of mathematics and statistical models in the framework of Austrian economics. Yeah. And obviously I was being a bit tongue in cheek there. And, sure. You know, I think Rothbard was, I don't know if he's a major in statistics, but he was taking a lot of statistics courses and 
Mises certainly, he's arguing with his brother on the, you know, underlying foundations of probability theory and stuff. So it's... Right. Okay. So why don't we dive right in? I know there's a lot of material here. Sure. Do you have your, that outline in front of you as well, or do you want me just to be... Oh, yeah. I got, yeah, I got it right here. Okay. So, yeah. So you want to start and, and say you, right off the bat that... So I guess, why don't we... The three main areas, like the way you sort of parse the episode... Yeah. Is you said, number one, mathematics is full of nonsense... Two, the academy is corrupt, and three, models versus reality. So for right. folks at home, it's giving them the big picture of what we're going to do. So right now we're in the section called mathematics is full of nonsense. Full of and nonsense. So, <laughs> yes. And so, so go ahead. You, why don't you take us take yeah. us through your pace, and I'll stop you for clarification, or if I want to perhaps occasionally even disagree. <laughs> no, disagree all you like. Let's give the people what they pay for. But anyway, so on the mathematics is full of nonsense parts, again, of the episode with you and Patterson. Now, you had come across, apparently recently, the Riemann's rearrangement theorem. And that was something that, you know, I got the impression that you were just like, what is this nonsense? What's going on here? This should mm -hmm. not be the case. And that sort of roused your suspicions and made you think that, you know, maybe Patterson is right that, you know, mathematics is shot through with nonsense. And so you have things like, Zeno's paradox, but fortunately, calculus solves that. I think it was Patterson who mentioned the magic ellipses or something like that. So when when mathematicians are writing formulae or doing proofs, and you got the dot dot dot, and there's a lot going on in that dot dot dot, and you know mm -hmm. they're they're slurring over the details and whatnot. And I have to admit that there there can be a certain amount of that. But again, that's a function of the mathematician with whom you're interacting. Uh, serious mathematicians will try to, you know, attend to those things. So anyway, well, why don't we, since the title of that episode was, I think it's, do infinite sets spell the downfall of higher mathematics? Mm -hmm. uh, let's start with infinite sets. Does that work? Yeah, it does. And let me just, again, even though I would have re replayed a lot of, excerpts from the thing. I don't remember if it, like my particular concern, let me just say state it very succinctly. Sure. It's pretty analogous to my thoughts about like economics or, you know, other sorts of fields too, where the beginnings are fine, right? but it's only later when it gets real advanced that yeah. the weirdness and craziness creeps in. And so it's likewise with the mathematics. Obviously, I'm not against arithmetic. I'm not even against calculus and those things. But right. what made me sit up and take notice with the Riemann's rearrangement theorem was I thought it's the way mathematicians handle infinite sums. Yeah. It seemed to me that, you know, fine, I get it. You know, like it's obviously not going to be the same thing as a finite sum. Like they got to come up with procedures and whatnot. But I thought if Riemann's result pops out of that process, that means you did something wrong. <laughs> that there right. must've been some absurdity that was introduced earlier on. Sure. That's kind of my take. So it's not like, oh, math is wrong. Right. I'm just saying that area and like what they were assuming, like, well, when it comes to an infinite sum, how about we proceed this way? And that's what we mean when we talk about adding up an infinite, because obviously you add up an infinite number of numbers that, you know, don't shrink, don't converge down that it, you know, all the answer is infinite or something. But anyway, so, or in one sense, if it would take an infinite long enough time, you say, well, we don't know. You know, we, we can't add that up because there's an infinite number of elements. Right. right. Like that would be like a sort of simplistic, you know, literal response. So sure. saying whatever it is that mathematicians say, this is what we mean when we have a dot, dot, dot. Right. That something's screwy if Riemann's result pops out. Right. Yep. So that's my, my 
position. Sure. Yeah. So then let's talk about an infinite set. So we'll work our way toward okay. the Riemann's rearrangement theorem and the explanation of it on how it fits into a broader context. And I think we'll be in good shape. But I will say, this is precisely the case where we have to attend to details. So mm-hmm. two quotes from Patterson in that past episode, he states, he thinks a lot of the formal theory around math is imprecise and unnecessary. And then about nine minutes later, he says he's not interested in the details of mathematics. And while I, you know, again, I'm sympathetic toward that view because I recognize that a lot of people view mathematics as being quite complex. I assure you, it's no more complex than it needs to be to solve the problems that we're trying to solve. We're not being needlessly complex for the sake of, you know, weed out courses or something like that. You know, we're, it's simply the result of trying to solve certain problems. And so, you know, before one more thing before going to infinite sets, I just want to make this point too. There were two, two sort of statements that were made also during there, which was there's mentioned a few times as the idea of a completed infinity. Mm-hmm. I literally don't know what that is. <laughs> I've never heard a mathematician use that phrase. So I think that that phrase might be a bit of a red herring. And then the phrase, imagine a circle whose radius is infinite. Again, never something a mathematician that I've ever known has ever said. So let's not get thrown off by that. Okay. So I suppose I should also give my mathematical background for some of the things I'm going to say, which is that I am not a, a very granular detailed logician of the type of say, Russell and Whitehead, you know, guys who are really trying to derive some sort of philosophical foundation for mathematics. That's not my background. I'm sort of maybe a level above that. My background is in what's known as analysis. So which you can think of functionally as the basis or the foundation of calculus, nor am I a historian of mathematics. I've taken a course in it. I read a few books, E.T. Bell, Metamathematics, great book, you know, but I'm not going to pretend that I've, you know, studied the works of Euler and things like that, you know, papers from 300 years ago or something. So I'm going to be approaching this from the standpoint of simply trying to provide more context around results pertaining to infinity and in particular Riemann's rearrangement theorem. That's going to be my tack and then feel free to, you know, poke at whatever you want as we go along. Okay. And so starting there, then my first statement is simply that I don't know about you, but I think I can guess that I cannot think about numbers without thinking about infinite sets. Uh, And my guess is that neither can you and neither can Patterson and neither can anybody. And the reason for that is quite simple, which is that you can always imagine adding one to (laughs) the maximum number in the set, because you can always imagine doing that. The idea of an infinite set in a certain sense, it's axiomatic to mathematics. And in fact, it is one of the Frankel-Zermelo axioms is the existence of an infinite set. And we typically call that set the natural numbers. Those would be your counting numbers, one, two, three, four, five, and so on. There's your dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's that. And then what- Well, can I stop you though? So I understand, trust me with all this stuff. I I certainly so far understand everything you're saying, where you're coming from. Yeah. And- Probably by the time we're done, I'm going to say, okay, great. Now I've given, you know, the listeners, the other side, like this is the orthodox mathematical response to some of the issues raised. But I imagine what somebody like Steve would say right there is, what do you mean, Ian? Or maybe he would call you Dr. Dieters. (laughs) That when you say 
you can't help, we can't help but think of infinite sets. No, it's the other way around. We can only think of finite sets, mm -hmm. and you're saying you can always add one. Right. Okay, and then it's still finite. Sure. You literally cannot picture an infinite, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's an idea. You can say the words. Yeah. But, so I think that's what he would say. Right. Okay, That's and that's fine. Well, in that case, then in practical terms, I probably can really only imagine sets of, say, seven elements, because... You have to think in practical terms, is there really a difference between infinity and five trillion? <laughs> in, in either case, you're not gonna you're not gonna write down five trillion numbers nor <laughs> any more than right, you can write down. Or like number. hold them separately in your consciousness. Yeah. Right, right. yeah. <laughs> and very much off to the side in sort of a related matter though, David Berlinsky makes this point when he's talking about, you know, evolution going through all of the different combinatorial explosion that it takes to get all of the gene sequences to actually have species come forth. You know, the probability at some point becomes so astronomical that you just call it zero and move on with your life. Um, mm. and so it's the same thing here is that you and I in our daily work, we go about our business doing arithmetic and we do it with this imaginary set in mind. But all of these things exist within our minds. These are simply ideas that exist within our minds. And so, I mean, I suppose a rejoinder to that would be something like, well, what does it mean for the natural numbers to exist anyway? Mm -hmm. What does it mean for any idea to exist? The fact of the matter is, is that ideas exist in our mind and then we act on those. And of course, the idea of praxeology is a very big idea in Austrian economics is that because I have the idea of an infinite set, I imagine certain things, those things manifest themselves through me in the manner in which I, pro for instance, program computers, which admittedly, and we'll get to this later, which admittedly do a finite number of computations but the computations they are performing are an approximation to something I imagined in my mind because I have this idea of an infinite set. Okay. okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So that's that. And then so once you're willing to go along with the idea of an infinite set of natural numbers, then you pretty much, you've given the game away. <laughs> So in other words, for the folks at home, you're saying really where it's going to come down like this philosophical divide yeah is does it make sense to think of one, two, three, four, dot, 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 forever? Yes. Or not? Or not, yeah. And Steve, you know, we, I think everyone can understand where Steve's coming from and say, no, no matter how far you put that, push that, yeah, it's always a finite number, but then I think people understand, Ian, where you're coming from and to say, okay, but like once that procedure is down, like we can certainly think of, like also it's, you can't really think of one through five trillion, like you said, like right. you really ca actually can't do that. And yet, it would be weird to say, come on, the, the idea of five trillion, that's kind of nonsense. Let's not use that anymore. Right. <laughs> like, for one thing, what would happen with the national debt, right? <laughs> you wouldn't be able to keep track of it, so. I, I actually did think about that when I was writing this up, because if I, I just selected a large number, like five trillion, I'm like, oh, but national debt does exceed that. Yeah, the national mm -hmm. debt doesn't exist. What is money, man? So anyway, <laughs> yeah, okay. And, and so the reason why I say it comes down to the natural numbers is once you have the natural numbers, then when you try to extend extend the numbers such that you introduce the idea of zero. You know, it's like, okay, mm -hmm. you have this symbol that represents the absence of something. You know, that's a greater, slightly greater de deal of sophistication, I think, than the natural numbers. Then you introduce the idea of negative numbers. Now you can, for any positive integer, you can find its pair such that when they add, they cancel and give you zero. Of course, you need that for the idea of debts, right? Um, so Ian, you're saying the progression 
whether this happened historically, but certainly like logically, if you're trying to just build from basic, everyone gets how, you know, quantity, like you could teach some Martian or something, our word for one, for two, for three, like they would probably get the abstraction. They wouldn't think we meant three screwdrivers that we were saying right. the quantity. If we were like, you know, holding up things and going one, two, three, like we're teaching the Martian how to speak English. Right. It would be hard to, to show them what zero means. And it would be really hard to show them negative three. And so the way that comes about is you, like you can do addition, like, oh, three and four is seven. And that's easy, you know, to enumerate and to, to like talk about that process of addition. And then you're saying, okay, and then once you have zero is a separate thing now. Okay, so what we mean by a negative number is, you know, seven plus negative seven is zero. Right. Like that's, okay. Yeah, exactly. And, and of course, it comes in nat very naturally through the idea of banking and whatnot. The algebraic way of thinking about it is trying to solve progressive, progressively more complex equations. So, for instance, without the number zero, you can't solve the equation one plus x equals one. But if you're willing mm -hmm. to include it, if you're willing to extend the natural numbers in a very obvious way, then you can. Integers, like, you know, I said they come from whole numbers. They allow you, for instance, to solve the equation 1 plus x equals 0. So now that you've got 0, you can ask yourself, well, what do I add to a, a natural number to get 0? And so that's another way of thinking about it. Of course, that's a more abstract way of thinking about it that algebraists, that's typically how they think about it is they say, okay, I want to solve this set of equations. You know, do I have mm -hmm. a sufficient... <laughs> are my numbers sufficiently rich so that I can solve this equation? Yes or no? Okay, yeah. Okay. You, so let me just make sure. So you're saying if you could introduce algebra and if you just did it on the natural numbers, that would work for a lot of problems. You know, three plus X equals seven. What's X? You could solve that. Oh, X equals four. Right. You, know, you could subtract the, you know, three from both sides, that kind of stuff. But then the problem would be is if you, if all you had is your set of potential things to plug into X was one, two, three, four, namely the, natural numbers, right? then yeah, if you wrote something like one plus X equals one, then you say, how do you say, oh, just subtract one from over and then, and then, well, you would be able to subtract. But anyway, yeah. you would get X equals zero. And so if you didn't know what zero was at that point, you would be stuck and you would say, this equation has no answer. And so that's how we could formally introduce what do we mean by zero? Exactly. And you could say it's the solution to this kind of a problem. Right. And so you'll, what, you'll find that in mathematics that there are, there are typical ways of of imagining sort of the, the meaning of it external to mathematics itself, mm -hmm. again, such as absence or debt or something like that. And then there's also a formal way to proceed to enlarge these sets of numbers in some reasonable fashion. Mm -hmm. of well, the reason I thought it was good to, to walk through it, even though I'm sure everyone at home is like, yeah, we got that, but is <laughs> when it comes to, when it comes to I, yeah. then it's not so intuitive. And so that's why I wanted to just drive yeah. home something simple. Yeah, that's correct. And so I'll walk through that when we get to that point. And then rational numbers, of course, come from integers and rational ratio. You're taking the ratio of them. And that's, of course, because sometimes you want to cut things into pieces and you need to keep track of that. And so, again, fractions are very, I think, easy to understand in terms of the physical problem you're trying to solve, that of dividing something into pieces. Okay, uh, just again, make sure. So, folks, what he's doing is he's enlarging the set of numbers and so we start with the natural, then he showed what the integers were. So that's, every, you know, any negative, like negative three, negative 17, negative two billion, zero, and positives as a set of integers. And then the set of rationals is any number that can be expressed as the ratio of two integers. Right. Yeah, So exactly. like three-fifths or negative, you know, 17, 18ths. Okay. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Right. And again, the 
algebraic way of thinking about it is, okay, well, how do you solve the equation 2x plus 3 equals 0? Mm -hmm. you, need to, you, need to have some, you need to have some sort of number to represent that, and that's, for instance, how you might do it formally. Now, if you take a course in abstract algebra, which reminds me, I wanted to ask you, I should have done that at the beginning, but what is your background in mathematics? How, how high up did you get? I know your brother has a master's in it. Well, I didn't get a master, but then we had to know a lot of math to get the PhD in economics at NYU. Okay. So I did a lot of like, I don't know, set theory and stuff there, but I, I don't, I'm not sure. I think I, I, I cobbled a lot of it together just by going and getting bucks. So I don't right. even know what label to put on it. Sure. Okay. No, that's fine. But I know it's like, I got into stuff like, you know, countable infinities and stuff like that, or, or countable sets versus uncountable, that kind of stuff. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. And so the process of getting the rationals from the integers just to be formal here, that's what's known as constructing a field of quotients from an integral domain. And so that's a very general construction that you can do with things that algebraists would study called integral domains, which are sort of the abstract version of the integers. And then the field of quotients that you construct from an integral domain is sort of the equivalent of what the rationals would be. And so then, so we've got the rationals now. So how do you go from the rationals to the real line? And again, that's a very canonical construction. But this one, this construction, instead of being algebraic in nature, is analytic in nature in the sense that you're making use of the fact that the rational numbers are what's known as a metric space. And so there is a way to calculate the distance between things. And so there's what's known as completing a metric space. And what that does is it basically says that when you complete a metric space, all what are known as Cauchy sequences converge. And so what a Cauchy sequence is, is it's a sequence of elements such that the elements in the sequence get closer and closer and closer and closer and closer together over time. And so you can think very easily of, say, a decimal expansion, right? If you have a decimal expansion, if you look at the, if you look at the truncations, each successive truncation is within one over 10 to some power of the previous term. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, and so the truncations of a decimal expansion are getting ever closer together. The question is, do they converge to some, does that sequence converge to something? And the answer in the case of the rationals is not always in the obvious sort of the, the very first thing that you would learn where, where that doesn't work is say the square root of two square root of two is in a, is an irrational number. The fact that it's irrational comes from a very simple proof by contradiction. And it's one of those proofs that you would do in an undergraduate, like a sophomore level class. Here's what proofs are, you know, here's your first homework kids. And then you go home and you prove that square root of two is irrational using argument by contradiction. That's a very classical exercise. And of course the geometric realization of the square root of two comes from, if I hand you a unit square, well, can we hang out? I think yeah. maybe people are getting a little bit lost. So sure. I'm sure they were with you, you know, okay, there's the natural integers, um, rationals. The, the rationals. And then is the next thing like now, or is it, you say, okay, now picture like the real, so picture the real number line. Yeah. So now we're so going picture to the real like, yep. like picture between, you know, between zero and one on a number line. And then, you know, like halfway between there, that's 0 0.5 or yeah, 0 0.5, 0, 0, 0, 0, And so that's fine. But then there's other ones in there where you, it doesn't, or like one third is 0 0.33333. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. You know, you can see how, okay. But 
something, you know, there are numbers in there that are irrational that can, it cannot be. And by the way, the 0 0.333 can be expressed as one divided by three. Right. So that's a way to see that's rational. Right. Well, of but course, now there, there's numbers in between zero and one that are not rational numbers that it's there. Like, how, what do you mean it's there? Well, well what, yeah, exactly. We what do you mean it. that it's there? Exactly. Yeah. Precisely. We can, so, we can define it and maybe you want to talk about that more in a second, but yeah, you, you people can, I get the idea that, okay, if every point in between zero and one re represents or corresponds to some number and then, but they're, they clearly are not all rational. And even though there's a bunch of rational in there, and yeah. then, so that, so, okay. So among other things, it irrational cannot be expressed as the ratio of two integers. And then now you're telling us the square root of two isn't, is probably like the most intuitive example of an irrational number. Yeah. It's the most intuitive example of an irrational number, because if I hand you a unit square, a square whose sides are unit length, you know, what does the Pythagorean theorem say? It says that the length of the hypotenuse is, satisfies that length squared equals one plus one. And mm. so whatever, so it's, oh, it's the number whose square is equal to two. Okay, fine. Well, you don't have a number. You can't express that. If you simply have the rationals, you need to enlarge your set. And the way you enlarge it is you, again, it's it, in metrics, in metric spaces, it's what's called completing a metric space. And it basically allows you to put in points for sequences, which don't converge, but whose terms get closer and closer. And so you could imagine the decimal expansion of say square root of two or something like that. Again, if you look at successive truncations, they're within powers of 10 of each other or one over powers of 10 of each other. And so the terms in the sequence are getting closer and closer, but it, it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't converge to anything because the square root of two is, it's irrational. And so basically the completion is the filling in of all of those gaps this is geometrically mm -hmm. how you can think of it. If you just have the rationals, what you can think of is you have this line, but it's very porous, very porous. It's like right, a sponge. Right. And then the completion fills in all of those points. And again, that construction is a very canonical construction. It's, it's a very general construction, but that's how you move from the rationals mm -hmm. to the reals. It's an analytic construction as opposed to an algebraic one. Okay. But also, but in terms of the algebraic one, like, like you're saying, if you did it as you wrote x squared equals two and then said solve for that and can only use rationals, you'd say, oh, wait, I can't then. You can't. Yeah, you can't right. solve the so equation. You, you need to have a bigger set of numbers to be to plug in to right. that to be able to solve that algebraic formula. And that's what you said. And they call them irrationals. Exactly. And so the to, to get just the square root of two, you can do that using an algebraic move. It's called, it's in the topic of extension fields is the idea, and there's a very canonical way to basically say, if you have a polynomial with coefficients that are rational and you need, you need all the solutions of it, you can canonically construct a larger set of numbers to include those solutions. Pardon me. But then there are other numbers that we think of as real numbers, like say pi, which are not the solution to any polynomial equation with rational coefficients. And yet, something like pi is very easy to, again, represent because you just draw a circle with radius one mm -hmm. and then you say, what's the area? Mm -hmm. And if you don't have the real numbers, you don't have a way to represent it. Even if you have all of the solutions to all of the polynomial equations with rational coefficients, you still can't represent pi. And that's because pi is what's known as a transcendental number. The demonstration of that is actually quite complex.
Mm. It took a while <laughs> to get the <laughs> square root of two irrational is like no problem. It's like sophomore level. It's like how hard can pi be? Very difficult. The proof that Okay, that, so there's a sense in which pi is more elusive than the square root of two, even though they're both irrational? Yes. Because, okay. And pi and e are both what are known as transcendental. So they don't, they don't have an obvious algebraic expression the same way that cube root of 17 does. You can imagine the cube okay. root of 17 is, please solve the equation x cubed minus 17 equals zero. Okay, I gotcha. I gotcha. Uh, okay. you, you cannot come up with any polynomial equation okay. where pi is the solution or e so, is. So are these true statements that you can write x squared equals two and that defines what root two is, or not defines, but that yeah. would correspond to, you know, solving that for x would be root two. Right. It's just, it wouldn't be a rational number that the, it would be the answer. It would right. be an irrational but you're saying you can't just write out some formula like that to say, oh, and this, if you could solve for X, then that would be pi. Correct. The way, okay. Yeah. Pi is not the solution of any polynomial equation with rational coefficients. And, and people might be confused. Like, what are you talking about? I write, you know, four pi R squared. Right. But no, there <laughs> you're putting pi in the equation. We're not exactly, saying yeah. <laughs> there can't be an algebraic equation with pi in there as a right. symbol. Right. But we're saying if you wanted to solve for what is pi, yes. you can't do it. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. And again, th those results that E and pi are transcendental are highly non-trivial. So, so that's that. And that's why I say once you have accepted the natural numbers as, a, as an infinite set, that's why, what I mean when I say that you've given the game away because you can very canonically move from the counting numbers to constructing the whole real line with not a lot of effort. So that's sort of the background there. So now why don't we get into, uh, let's, let's get into the Riemann rearrangement theorem. Okay. Now, let me, just to make sure we're, we're finishing. Yeah. So he, so is that this is true? Is it, are these true statements that the, cause I, lo I love the like building up stuff. So the, sure rationals and the irrationals put together are the real numbers? Correct. Is that a true statement? Okay. Yes. And the real number are basically anything that could be on the real, what's called the real number line. And that's right. why. That's now let me, can I ask you, because I know you, in the email, you said you didn't think there was anything, like Steve and I were having fun with I, calling yeah. it imaginary. Right, yeah. Can we, since we're kind of talking about this, would it make sense to hit that first? Yeah, sure, we can do and that. And then we can, so just, I don't want to lose the train of thought, even yeah, though the sure, 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 rearrangement sure. is like the meat of what we're trying to do here in this episode. Okay, so I look, is there anything, so when you said rational, you said that's because they could be expressed as a ratio. Mm -hmm. So does it have anything at all to do with, well, this makes sense, whereas the irrationals kind of don't make sense? You know what, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Or, or is that completely like, no, that has nothing to do with that? Because wasn't there a thing, Histed, I know you said you don't like the history, but wasn't there yeah. something where like the ancient Greeks or there was some sect where when they found out about the square root of two, they wanted to commit suicide or something? Like, it, like they, it really bothered them that it was irrational? Yeah, so I'm going to engage in rumor and hearsay at this point. Why not? Yeah, it's a, yeah. this is a podcast. This isn't peer-reviewed, <laughs> right? <laughs> Alex Jones is coming over in a minute. Uh, but, uh, so rumor has it that was the Pythagoreans, that they would get mm -hmm. bent out of shape with irrational numbers. But of course, again... It's really not that hard to generate an irrational number if you just draw a square. <laughs> you know, these things occur somewhat naturally. That said, this is why I'm saying... And by the way, in case people are saying, well, how wouldn't like, like a three, four, five triangle right. would be fine and be well-behaved. Yeah. Yeah, you know, no they're, they're, you don't have any... They would all be, you know, fine. You wear it, but then if you do, oh, wait, but what if it's one, one, then what's the hypotenuse yeah, of that what's one? What's the hypotenuse? 
Yeah, but here's the thing. Like I said, it's rumored hearsay. I've never looked that story up, so I can't mm-hmm. comment on whether or not that's true. Or, I mean, I saw it in a book. I didn't see it on a Reddit thread, but <laughs> just because it's in a book doesn't mean it's true. But right. Well, that's, but that's where I was coming from, though, Ian. The reason I'm not just merely like, hey, let's take a minute to talk about guys who are really into numbers. Sure. What I meant though was, you, from their point of view, there was a sense in which rational numbers made sense and irrational numbers that doesn't even make sense. Yeah. So I was wondering, was there more to those terms? Because also, I think it makes sense to call the real numbers real and imaginary numbers imaginary. Like, I don't think those are just completely arbitrary labels, even though I know you're going to push back on that in a second. (laughs) Well, I guess rational, in my mind, does derive from the word ratio. And when you, again, when you complete the metric space, so you've embedded the rational numbers now in a larger Mm -hmm. set of numbers, and you just say to yourself, well, what's the complement of the set? Okay, well, if this is rational, what's not rational? Irrational. Well, how about that? I'll push one more time and then I'll go drop for it. it. Yeah, go for and it. Then we'll go on the, how about though, because is it true with the rationals, if you express them as a decimal, they repeat? Like there's repeating? Or they terminate. Is that true? They repeat or terminate. Or they, or they terminate. Yeah. Okay, so, and so folks, like, you know, like one third is 0.333 forever, and there's even ones. Do you know one off the top of your head where there's like a string of digits though that then starts repeating? Well, yeah, like one seventh. Okay, which is what? I don't know if that is the time at. 0.1428 and then three more digits. <laughs> okay. Okay. That then just keep repeating. Okay. That's opening up my calculator right now. 0.142857. Okay, I guess I lied. It was only six digits repeating. And then it just keeps doing that for okay. So yeah. so that's there's that. Whereas the irrationals, if you start writing it as a, a decimal expansion, yeah. there's not going to be any pattern. It's not like you just, oh, just do out to the 13th and then it's going to be those 13 digits again and again and again forever. Right. You just, you just got to keep generating new ones. There's partly like with the pie, how you people will have, there wouldn't be contests to memorize <laughs> one seventh and to see how many digits of one seventh could you memorize. Whereas It'd be a very boring contest. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> a lot of ties. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> or I guess, the, yeah, more a lot of just to see who could stay up the longest. Right. So, Okay, so I, I actually want to make a point about that, though, yeah. because this is important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's important to me. I don't think it's important to anyone else. But that's one of those facts that you learn in, it, it, this is why I'm sort of sympathetic to that episode with Patterson, is because that's one of those facts that you learn in grade school, that rational numbers have repeating decimals or terminating decimals, and then the mm-hmm. irrationals are the complement. Their mm-hmm. decimals neither repeat nor terminate. You never see a demonstration of that. <laughs> But in fact, there is, and that result holds no matter what number base you're using. Mm -hmm. And there is a way to, if you hand me any number, say between zero and one, that is rational, there is a way to create those expansions mechanically. So Mm -hmm. then, and to demonstrate that that irrational numbers do not have that. There there is a way to do it. It's all it really requires is an, uh, first course in number theory, but mm-hmm. of course, most pe- most grade school students never make it to a first course in number theory. Right, right. So I wanted to make that point clear to to people that you actually do have to put some work into that, but that result does hold. Well, anyway, though, but so where I'm coming from though is just to say to me, it does seem like I could, for sure, it would help me remember the the labels. Like, wait, wait, which one's rational? Which one's is that? There's a pattern to the rational ones. You know what I mean? So you can imagine like scientific. 
Like if someone wants to make an argument for the existence of God and say nature is rational, mm-hmm. like there's patterns out there, there's laws, the regularity. Yeah. Whereas if it's just, no, we don't know what's coming next ever, it's irrational. You see what I'm saying? So anyway, okay. But now the one that I'm more confident of is... Imaginary. So you've got the real numbers. You've got the real numbers. talked about what that is. And you're feeling good. (laughs) What would it mean to be an unreal number? It would be imaginary. And so you see like linguistically, they're contrasting. There's numbers that are real and then there's numbers that are imaginary. And the, the building block to how do you go from the real to the imaginary is this thing called I, which is defined as the square root of negative one. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, just a comment on the nomenclature of mathematics. No one included me in the voting process for that. I would have chosen different <laughs> ones. <laughs> but you are correct that when you move from the real line to the complex plane, often, not often, always, you call that additional piece, that the imaginary unit, the imaginary number. And I think the reason... Do you know, is that why they called it I? Is it I for imaginary, or do we not so. know that? I, okay. I, I, I always or assumed that was true. Some guy, Igor, is the one who thought of it? Yeah. <laughs> no, I believe it was Hamilton, although I'd have to go back and look. Because I, I definitely know he came with the quaternions, which is an extension of the complex mm. plane. But anyway, so then the construction of the complex plane from the reals is actually an algebraic one. And it is very similar to how you get the rationals from the integers. And so the way you get the rationals from the integers is we, we write when we're doing with, with our rationals, we write, you know, a over B, you know, right? Like seven over three or something like that. But really what, if you wanted to formalize that, you could think of it as uh, an ordered pair of numbers. So seven over three would be the ordered pair of seven comma three. Okay. And the extension from the reals to the complex plane is very similar, which is that the complex plane may be thought of as, as ordered pairs of real numbers. And you ex- extend the arithmetic of the reals to those ordered pairs. And then in particular, and so the, the real line is contained in the complex plane for the ordered pairs where the first component is some real number and the second component is a zero. And so you can think of that just like with the real plane, right? If, if, it's, if you move from the, the number line to plane, the x-axis, that's just real numbers with a zero and the y. Mm-hmm. That's how it looks in the complex plane as well. And that extension is algebraic because it's saying, okay, fine. We have, we can now consider polynomials in, uh, with real coefficients, for instance. We want to solve the polynomial x squared plus one. It's the same thing. You need to extend your numbers in a canonical way. And there's a algebraic construction, a canonical algebraic construction to do that. And that's how you derive the complex plane. But again, the complex plane is simply ordered pairs of real numbers with your addition and multiplication defined appropriately. <laughs> and when I say appropriately, I mean in a way so that the complex plane really is an extension of the real line. The fact that they're called imaginary is quite unfortunate, but here we are. Okay. Well, again, I'll just reason, say the reason yeah. why they're called imaginary is because with each step, it's becoming the these new numbers that we're adding in, right? They become harder and harder to conceptualize. Right. And the number of people using natural numbers is quite large. The number of people using imaginary numbers in their day-to-day lives is very small. And so as these constructions grow, the set of people who actually care shrinks. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, no, I think nobody's denying even, not even Steve, that, you know, we can define these things and what do you mean by it? It's this rigorous and whatever, just like, 
you know, the dungeon master running the game could say, well, no, if, you know, you're third level paladin, this is true and blah, blah, you know, it could be, there could be rules and so forth, but it does not necessarily corresponding to something that's quote real. And so anyway, I get what you mean, but for the, for whatever it's worth, to me, it makes sense to, for someone to say, yeah, th these numbers are imaginary because they're based on this thing called the square root of negative one, which if you think about it, that doesn't really make sense. There's no such number such that, you know, when you square it, the answer is negative one, but we'll just call that I, let's go with this on this. And then it turns out to have applica application to, well, you know, electricity and stuff. I mean, you're right. There is no real number whose square is negative one, but it is true that when you have your ordered pairs defined appropriately, there is an ordered pair whose square corresponds sure, sure. to negative yeah. one. I got it. Okay. All right. I will <laughs> go ahead and let's jump into the re Riemann rearrangement because I've been stopping you and we got the clock is ticking here. We don't yeah, have an sure, infinite sure. amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Now we've constructed the whole, whole of the complex playing. Uh, good for us. We got a lot uh, done. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> All in one evening. Okay. So let's talk about Riemann's rearrangement theorem. So the first thing I want to say is that when you're doing analysis, when you're doing calculus, a lot of what you're doing in those classes is you are trying to make precise ideas related to infinity, things that are infinitely large, things that are infinitely small. That's what you're trying to do. And it should be observed that all of these things are done in finite terms. So we might, for the purposes of intuition, write something like, you know, one divided by infinity equals zero or something like that, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and that, that gets your intuition going. You get an idea about what's meant by it. But if you put that in a proof, your professor slaps your hand. That's a no-no. And so a lot of what you're doing in analysis is you are trying to very precisely define concepts related to infinitely large, infinitely small, that sort of thing. And all of these things are done in finite terms. So for instance, you would say a sequence is unbounded if I hand you any positive number, 5 trillion again, and some positive integer, 300, and you can find some number in the sequence past the 300th term, which exceeds 5 trillion. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's what it means to be unbounded. But notice that in when I defined unbounded, I did it in purely finite terms. Here, I'm, I'm going to hand you two, I'm going to hand you two fine, I'm going to hand you two numbers, you're going to hand me back a different number. It's all done in finite terms. There's no infinite symbol anywhere in there. Similarly, when we say a sequence converges, so if you have a sequence of points converging to something, well, what do we mean by that? Well, what we mean is that the sequence past a certain point, if you, if you hand me, if you hand me a very small number, mm -hmm. if you hand me a very small number, I can find some integer such that all the members of the sequence past that point are within that small number distance of the proposed limit. And so again, this is all done in finite terms. You hand me an error tolerance. I hand you back a positive integer and say, past this point, you're within error tolerance for all members of the sequence. Okay. And so that's what you're trying to do in calculus. That's what you're trying to do in analysis. And one of the things that you have to do is you admittedly have to be very careful with these things in the sense that, and again, this is where I think Patterson is correct, because in practical terms, we never actually do an infinite number of things, right? You, all of our intuition is 
built in the finite. And so a lot of what you're doing then, when you're doing analysis is saying, how much of my intuition extends to infinite processes and how much of it does not? And so what I thought I would do was take you through a few examples to sort of build this up. Okay. So let's share, <clears throat> kind of see what can go wrong. So for folks who are listening to the audio, Ian is sharing a screen. It's like, I got it, but it's going to be a PowerPoint. Yes. So you may want to, when you get a chance, folks fl slip over to the YouTube version, which, you know, you can get at the, at the show notes page. Yep. Okay. And so th this first example is sort of a classical one. And it's what happens if you start playing fast and loose with infinity. And so on the left-hand side here, we've got zero. And you say, well, zero, that's no big deal. I can write zero as this infinite sequence of zeros. Surely zero is equal to an infinite sum of zeros. And I can take each one of those zeros and I could write it as one minus one. And then I can reassociate, mm -hmm. put a one up front. So now I've got one plus pairs of negative one plus one, but all those pairs equal zero. And so that's just one plus a bunch of zeros. And of course it equals one. And I just prove zero equals one. And oh my goodness. But of course, what's going on here is that you're being sloppy with your infinite series computations here. Is really what love, look, can I stop you, Steve? Ian? Yeah, so sure. I mean, keep can you keep that big? Oh yeah. You just did something that made it shrink. <laughs> so I just want to make sure, because it took me a minute to, or not a minute, but it took me a, a second to, to figure out what you just did there. So, yeah. so I have to, for people looking at home, so it's, you know, zero, and then he's going to, clearly that equals, you didn't include this, but you could imagine being zero plus zero plus zero plus dot, 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 dot forever. Right. Clearly zero equals that. Yeah. And then you could re, for each of those zeros and that, that, those sequence, you could, instead of writing zero, you could write in parentheses one minus one. Right? Because that's zero. So how could that possibly change it? Right? Correct. And now that you have that with those parentheses, all you're doing right, Ian, is just moving the parentheses one unit to the right. Yep. You're just reassociating. You're applying yep. the associative property an infinite number of times. Right. And that for any finite sum, moving the parentheses like that's not going to change the answer. So it shouldn't change it here. Right. And yet now, if you look at that expression, that's sort of in the, you know, in the middle, a little bit to the right, if you're looking at the screen here, it's one plus... And then in parentheses, negative one plus one plus in parentheses, negative one plus one. So it's now one plus a string of things that are zero. And so you just proved apparently that zero equals one. So something's screwy. Yep. And I guess, Ian, you're going to say this is kind of like the simplest version, the simplistic version of what was making me go, what the heck? They're doing something crazy. <laughs> yeah. And well, then so the difference here is that the explanation here is, I mean, clearly one doesn't equal zero. <laughs> the explanation here is that you're playing fast and loose with your infinite sums. And mm -hmm. if you, if I ask you to actually write down the series that's represented by each one of these things, you wouldn't actually be able to do that. That's the thing. And that's where the fallacy is here. But this is the kind of thing you start toying with when you start getting into calculus and analysis and really trying to, this, what this demonstrates is you have to be very careful and clear in your reasoning which again is why all of these concepts are defined in finite terms. Okay. Well, can you just dwell on that a little? Because I agree with you. This is awesome. And I'm glad, you know, you took the time to type this up and everything because I think this really does get to the heart of it where, you know, I, I might have, it, it, 
Because this, to me, this seems kind of like when they, when you do this, like one plus two plus three equals, what is it like negative one twelfth or something? You familiar with that one? One plus two plus three equals negative one twelfth. Yeah, it was. I've, the, never, I've never seen that one. The Ramajan guy, or um, the, the the Indian prodigy. Yeah, that, yeah. That the one guy discovered and brought to England or something. Robotics. That was something apparent. I think he proved it. It, it. it goes around Twitter every once in a while, and there's a. I mean, obviously, it's not. Like they say, well, now what do we mean by this? And they, you know, they have all kinds of summation symbols and things. Right. But the way it is billed is to say, hey, did you know that one plus two plus three da, 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 equals negative one twelfth? Right. And so anyway, that kind of looks like this to me. And yeah, so here you're saying, no, this is wrong. And so can you just one more time just explain what, why can't I just move the? Because I would have thought I'd be allowed to move the parentheses. And, and <laughs> sure. I imagine... If that it never led to a weird result, everyone's like, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And it's right. only because we know it leads to something blown up in your face. Like, whoa, 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 I guess you can't do that after all. Well, the real well, the real reason is, is praxeology is when you go to the bank and try to convince them that zero is one, that it just doesn't fly. <laughs> uh, but the real reason is that I, I committed the sin right after the first equal sign. So yeah, okay. right there. And the reason why is because that series, one minus one plus one minus one plus one minus one plus one. Uh-huh. When you add that up, again, you have to be careful with your reasoning. What does it mean for an infinite sum to converge? It means that the partial sums, which are okay. finite, the partial sums converge to something. Well, the partial sums of that series are one zero one zero one zero one zero. They don't converge to anything. Okay, yeah. All right, let me translate. So, number one, what you're saying is the mistake was not or the illegitimate move was not shifting the parentheses to the right, right one number each. Yeah. The mistake was already was in the first move when it you said zero equals, <laughs> and then a thing because for any finite truncation of that series, if, if you just started, you know, the first, if you just look at the first digit, it's one. Then the second one, it's zero because it's one minus one. And then the third, it's back up to one again because it's one minus one plus yeah. one. Yeah. And then the fourth, it's back to zero again. So every time you add a new term to that, it just goes between zero, one, zero, one, zero, one. Even if you do a trillion of them, yep. and it just keeps bouncing back and forth. It doesn't, it's not that each new term gets smaller and smaller so that the whole thing yep. converges. As opposed to something like one over one plus one over two plus one over three like that. Like, where is that? I realize you can get, Ian, you can go ahead and get into like divergent convergence series and things, but right. I'm just trying to get people to, to get their mind going as to what would it mean to say it can go on forever and it does actually get smaller and smaller. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then, and that's the thing is that again, what it means for an infinite sum to converge, it's all defined in terms of finite terms. And what it is, is the partial sums have to converge to something. The partial sums of this case don't converge to anything. They bounce back and forth. It's a divergent okay. series. And so, yeah. So the point of this example is it's in some sense, it's in contrast to Riemann's rearrangement theorem because his theorem is correct. Pardon me. Whereas this is a fallacy, <laughs> and I'll well, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, you just put your finger on it. Like it's to me, it sounds like what Riemann's showing is that this, and so I want to say this is nonsense. So I like how yeah. you said, well, no, the way we prevent this from happening is to say what you did was illegitimate for these reasons. Okay, yep. and so I would like Riemann's theorem to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, yeah, well, we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, okay, okay, so so we good on this one? Yes. All right. So let's proceed. Okay, so now, from now on, we're only going to handle uh, true results here. <laughs> but okay. I, I, want, I want to 
continue on the theme of... I should make that a pledge for this whole show. From now on, the Bob Murphy Show, we're only going to state true things. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the point of these next examples is, to, is basically to show you, look, you have an intuition for finite matters. Some of that intuition gets ported over, some of it doesn't, and so you got to be careful. And so here's another example of that. So I, I have here, consider the sequence of functions fn equals i subscript the interval, open interval, n minus 1 to n of t. Okay, so what is that? That's an indicator function. And so here's what it looks like. And so all it's saying is f1 is the indicator function for the interval 0, 1, which means that the function is 0 almost everywhere. It turns on at 0. It's 1 up to 1 and then turns off again. So it's just a signal. And then f2 would be it's off. Until one, it turns on at one, turns off at two, and so on. F3 turns on at two, is one for a unit, turns off at three, and, and so on. And so that's what Fn is. It turns on for an interval of length one and then turns off. Okay. Okay. And so you, you remember that, and so then you could ask yourself, okay, well, consider the sequence of integrals. So what's the integral of this thing? Well, the integral of this thing is just one because it takes the value one for an interval of length one and then it turns off again. So this is uh, length one. Okay, fine. And then here's F2. And then here's its integral. And then here's F3. And here's its integral and so on. Okay, well, what just happened here? Well, what happens here is that the conclusion is that the each of these integrals is one so you have a sequence of ones. The sequence of ones clearly converges to one. <laughs> but as we saw in the last slide, one is not equal to zero, but zero is the integral of the limit of the functions. Because the limit of the functions, because they turn on only for an interval of unit length and then turn off, the limit of the functions is just identically zero. And so here you have a case where uh, switching in integration and taking a limit, they don't cohere. Mm -hmm. And so this is another example where you would like the integral of a limit to be the limit of the integrals, but it's not true. And again, that's because when you start dealing with infinite processes, your intuition doesn't always pour onto it. And so then in analysis, what you would do is you would say, this sucks. Well, what can we do about it? Well, let's come up with conditions under which this is true. Let's come up with conditions and, and proof theorems and say, all right, well, when is it the case that the limit of integrals is equal to the integral of a limit? And mm -hmm. so probably the most celebrated result coming out of that would be the Lebesgue-dominated convergence theorem, which gives a very general condition which says, if your sequence has this property, then you get to do your limit switching. Otherwise, no, no, no. You can't do that. All right. We good on this one? Yep. Okay. So now we're going to start really moving toward Riemann's theorem. So consider this function. So this is a function. This is the indicator function on the negative reals times negative two plus one. And so what does this look like? It looks like this. You've got your, it's on up until zero. You multiply it by a negative two and add one. So you get negative one. And then after zero, the indicator turns off, you just got one. So it's negative one, and then 
at zero, jumps up to one, goes onward. Okay, so what does the integral of this function look like? Well, it looks something like this. And this is what you would see in, say, in a Calc 2 book or something like that, where you have a function which takes both negative and positive values. And, but when you integrate it, because some of them are below the real line and some of them are above the real line, they cancel out. Mm -hmm. And so that the whole integral is just zero. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. But this is where we start to have problems, well, problems that give rise to the Riemann rearrangement theorem. Because what you could do instead is you could take the same function and instead of taking the integral, sort of going to positive and negative infinity at the same rate, mm -hmm. you move at different rates, which I have labeled here as h of x and g of x. Mm -hmm. And so if g of x is moving more slowly toward infinity than h of x, then in fact, when you compute these integrals over the finite intervals, you can actually make that integral whatever you want it to be. Right, okay. Does that make sense? Yep. And so this is sort of the continuous version of the Riemann rearrangement theorem, which is that if you have these functions which are uh, positive a lot of the time and negative a lot of the time, depending on the rate at which you go to positive or negative infinity, you can make that integral equal whatever you want it to be. Mm -hmm. And so this is the difficulty. And of course, that is what gives rise to the Riemann. Now, now, can I, yeah. let me try to say something. Sure. This probably won't be entirely grammatical, but just, I, I don't want the people at home to be confused. So I believe you're not saying that, oh, for any finite thing that like, it's like that right there. What, what is that? that? That sums to one? Uh, what well, are you doing right there? Well, you, it, it sums to A. Oh, okay, okay. I, yeah, I was thinking that was a unit. Okay. So it's because right there, like have, like the one is twice as much. The top thing is t going to the positive twice as fast as the bottom thing is going. Is that right? Well, it's not that it's going twice as fast. It's just that the top one is, so if you look at the G of X over here, G of X, it just takes its time putting its shoes on, getting out the door, whereas h of x is already out the door moving toward positive infinity. And so g of x is zero for a little while and then starts moving toward negative infinity. Meanwhile, h of x was already on its way. And so then the result then is that the integral on finite intervals is perfectly balanced such that on any finite interval, when you're moving toward positive and negative infinity at these rates, your integral is always equal to a. Oh, okay. So it's, I thought that was, that happened to be twice that it, it's just, no, I just misgaged. It's not that that top right one is twice as wide as the bottom left one. Right. It's, it's, it's as wide plus A. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And yep. so if you kept expanding it, then the bottom one would be even bigger. So they would, okay. And so you're saying for any, stop it at any finite point and then sum up the two things, the net result is going to be A because by construction, that bottom left thing is going to be a certain width the top right was going to be that width plus A. Yep. Okay. And so now what you're doing though, when you say what's the infinite sum, you're going ahead and letting it go to infinity, but you're saying if for any partial sum, any stop it at any point, if, you, if that's the way the thing works. So it's not that the bottom thing doesn't eventually go to infinity. It does. It does. And the top one goes to infinity to the right. Yep. But since the definition of like, what do we mean when we say sum the thing up going to infinity, you say, well, it's the limit. So for any finite stopping point, when you go and check, 
that top thing is always going to be a bigger. And so no matter how long you let the thing run, the total sum, the partial sums are a, and so to say, what's the limit of this thing is we let it go to infinity, you know, negative infinity on the left thing and the right, it's always a. Exactly. And then since a was an arbitrary number, you're saying I could make a anything I want. So right. I could, okay, I got it. Right. And so this is, again, that's why I say this is the continuous version of the rerun rearrangement theorem. So we just took the same function and depending on the rates at which we went to positive and negative infinity, we were able to manipulate that integral to be whatever we want which is roughly what Riemann's doing with his rearrangement theorem. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, and then again, in both cases, I think you're correct. In both cases, you should stop and go, wait a minute, what? I feel like a sum should always be the same thing. I feel like an integral should always be the same thing. What is this nonsense of, oh, if I vary this rate and vary that rate, I can make it whatever I want it to be. That doesn't seem very well defined. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, there is a solution to both of these things, which I will get to in just one moment. But first, but first a word from our sponsor. No, but first a word <laughs> about finite sums. So you mentioned this in the Patterson interview, so I wanted to go through it with you. And you said, you know, oh, I could rearrange things any way I want. And you said, I think that's the commutative property. And the answer is, yeah, maybe. But the point that I want to make here is that your ability to rearrange sums of finite numbers and, and always get the same thing, that's not a property of numbers. That's something that you deduce from numbers. So in the case of n equals two, I mean, it's true, but it's not mm -hmm. an axiom. That's my point. Mm -hmm. It's a theorem. It's not an axiom. Okay. In the case of n equals two, it's the commutative property. But what about in the case of n equals three? And so here we've got x plus y plus z. And now the question is, is that equal to z plus x plus y? And the answer is yes, but you have to do some work. And I just wanted to make a point of this work. So what you have to do is first you have to reassociate. Then you can use the commutative property on z and y. Then you reassociate again. Mm -hmm. And then you use the commutative property on z and x. Mm -hmm. and so the fact that you can do this rearrangement, it's true. It's a deduction. It's not an axiom. And it should be observed that it should be observed, stop sharing. It should be observed that not only is it not an, not an axiom, it's a deduction, that it's a reasonable question saying, okay, well, we know that it's a theorem in the case of finite numbers. Does it hold true in the case of infinite sets that we can always do that? And Riemann's rearrangement theorem says, no, you can't. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. And I, I suppose I also wanted to, this is sort of a, a, a tangential point, but I wanted to bring it up, which is that even those properties of commutative and associative, and this goes back to the point I was trying to make at the beginning when I said, we don't make things any more complex than they need to be. You know, the, the axioms that we choose, obviously for the case of the axioms for the real numbers, basically you can think of them as being derived from ideas of counting, right? That's why we, that's why we say, okay, things are commutative and you can reassociate. But it should be observed that there are, there are times when associativity doesn't hold. So subtraction is one of them. You can't mm -hmm. one minus two minus three. It does matter the order in which you do those subtractions. Right, right. Another example, and this comes from uh, my friend who's a professor of uh, chemistry and biochemistry, is associativity does not hold in chemistry. So if you combine two chemicals and then a third one, that's 
mm-hmm. you can sometimes get a different result combining the second and third and then the first. And so the one, the example she gave me is ammonia plus platinum plus chlorine is inactive. But if you take platinum and chlorine and combine it and then add ammonia, all of a sudden you have a chemotherapy medication. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. And so what's the solution to all this? So Riemann's rearrangement theory, but you can imagine it as basically being a counterexample to the question, can I rearrange things any way I want? The answer is no. But the solution to regain your intuition is basically to say, you know, and this is what mathematicians did. Mathematicians said, wait, this is ridiculous. We want our integrals to be the same number, no matter how we, what, over what region we integrate. Mm-hmm. And we want our sums to be rearranged all we want. And so the answer to that is very simple, which is what's known as an absolutely convergent series. So an absolutely convergent series is one where the absolute values of the terms converge. And when you have an absolutely convergent series, then you can rearrange things in any order you want, and you always get the same sum. And the same thing holds for the integral, which is that if you take the if you restrict attention to functions whose absolute value is integrable, then it does not matter which regions you consider first when you're integrating. You can integrate mm-hmm. over whatever regions you want and take any limit you want, and you always get the same answer. And so that's then the mathematical solution, which is to say, again, you start off by being really clear in your thinking about how you define concepts related to infinity. You generate, counter, you generate examples where you go, well, that's a bunch of who I don't like my intuition being broken. Mm-hmm. And then you say to yourself, fine, well, then what are the conditions under which my intuition is retained? And that's absolutely sellable series or what we would say an integrable function. An integrable function is one whose absolute value, the, that integral exists. And then you move on with your life. <laughs> and that's how you handle it, is that we just never talk about those series again. We never talk about those functions again because they're, because we don't know what to do with them because of these results. And yet, even though we exclude certain series and certain, I mean, you're already excluding certain sequences by even asking them to be summable in the first place. So the sequence, you know, an equals n is not summable. So you're already excluding those. You're just excluding a few more. And yet that which you retain is sufficiently rich to do useful work. Okay. I think there, you just hit the nail on the head because I could imagine Steve Patterson saying, Okay, yeah, so you guys, you're throwing stuff out when it leads to craziness. Yep. And I'm just saying, throw infinite sets. That's where the rot comes in. And we, what And what do we lose? He's going to say, look, computers can still do their thing. Any yeah. operation that humans do in the real world, anything that has actual applications, all take just a finite number of steps. Yep. So we don't lose anything. And it's just, you know, your guys, like you're... I mean, like, you know, he's not going to stick a gun to your people's heads and say, stop <laughs> thinking about infinite sets, but he's just saying, you get the point. So what would you point. say something like that? I get like the that? point, but yeah. I very much disagree. And well, Obviously, yeah. I'm, I'm, not trying to con- <laughs> well, I'm not trying to convince you. I'm stating that for you then to give your response. So yes. again, you're agreeing. <laughs> All we're doing now is disagreeing about what stuff to throw out. Or maybe not throw out, not the right word, but where we need to say, right. you got to be real careful from this point forward. And yeah. so he's saying... I would draw that line with infinite sets because up till then, everything makes sense. Everything's intuitive. You start introducing infinite size sets and it, crazy stuff happens. Right. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So 
All right. So that is a fun way to frame the conversation. And the answer to that, I think, is very straightforward, which is that for one thing, that which I am excluding, and I would say most mathematicians exclude, is far less than he wants to exclude. And so now I simply have to make a case. And and, and I'm I'm sorry, Ian, but let me state again. When you say you're excluding it, be more precise. Like, what do you you mean exactly? What I mean is I don't don't think about... you're not going to bring it up at a dinner party? That's not what you mean. So what do you mean? (laughs) It means I don't think about conditionally convergent sequences. You just did. Yeah, yeah. For the purpose of this conversation, you're a liar. Yeah, but after this, <laughs> starting after this, now, never, never again. <laughs> after this, never again. I don't, I don't think about them because I don't know what to do with them. That's the thing. Okay. Because they break my intuition, I don't know what to do with them, and so I don't consider them when I'm doing mathematical work. Okay, so in theory, and I know this is going off the rails, but that's fine. That's fine. So, in principle, if some I don't know what physicist or who knows what, maybe in a biologist or something, maybe it's that they found a really important use for those things. Mm-hmm. Would you then say, okay, yeah, I was wrong. I shouldn't have, you know, now I do need to start thinking about them. Well, I, well, but again, this goes back to the point that the axioms that mathematicians use are to solve problems. Mm-hmm. If there was some problem that we thought, where we thought it would make sense, where, where we thought considering conditionally convergent sequences would would help solve this problem somehow, then that would open up the field of study. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, for example, as an analogy, when I, back when I was totally thought Steve was full of it, I mean, I thought it was cute, I would always talk about I, and I would say they use it in electromagnetism. Mm-hmm. Like, so clearly, there's a, you know, we can talk about it formally and say what it is, and it's not just though doing, like, spinning off, you know, fantasy stories about Narnia. Like, no, it has practical implications. Right. Not that there's anything wrong with thinking about Narnia. But you right. know what I'm saying. Like, yeah. it's not just mere, like, entertainment for mathematicians that, like, what if there was this thing squared to negative one? Like, no, right. it really helps us build circuit boards. And yeah. so, okay. So is, well, is that kind of where you come down? Like, in general, you're just saying with these things? Well, that, that, that's true. So, well, that's true of all ideas. That's what, I, that's what I said at the beginning of this, is that we have these ideas, but never mind mathematics, almost all of your ideas are immaterial. But when you have those ideas, those inform your actions. And those actions produce real results in the world. So the question is, you know, does, you know, pondering conditionally convergent series, does that inform your actions in some useful fashion in the real world? If it does, let's do it. If it doesn't, well, I'm just not interested. That's all. Mm -hmm. But that's not a mathematical result. That holds true everywhere. So, I mean, that's why, for instance, to a very briefly personal story, originally I thought I was going to study algebra in my PhD work. And I got to this course and the professor said, we're going to classify all nil potent such and such and such. And, and I just said, he said, what, we're going to do what? I didn't even, we're going to classify said. all nil potent. I don't quite remember what it is. Modules over the integers or something. I don't even remember that's that an algebraist listening to this barely wants to punch me in the face right now. But anyway, the point is, is that we were going to define a certain kind of object. Then we were going to classify it. And I had no idea why we were doing this. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and, and I said, you know what? I love you, Professor so-and-so, but this just isn't for me. <laughs> I, couldn't, I mm. couldn't make the connection between what we were going to do with that and life. And so to me, it became the equivalent of Sudoku. Sudoku is something that you do for entertainment. You know, if you're able to complete it, it's, you know, it's done rationally. It's done logically. 
And yet at the end of it, it was purely for your entertainment. People are like, oh, thank God uh, Bob solved the Sudoku puzzle because now we can you know, mm-hmm. launch the spaceship or something like that. But it is true. I want to make sure I'm, there are plenty of areas of math where the theorists scoped it all out and came up with all the results, even though they couldn't, quote, apply it to anything. And then down the road, people did find like, oh, actually, you know, these results are over here. It actually is really useful in this. Right, yeah. So, okay, so you, it's, you're it's not like, faulting, you're not saying all mathematicians need to have it. You're just saying it's your cup of tea. Right. You have a trouble getting excited about something. Yeah. Freedom to choose mathematics, a personal statement. Okay. <laughs> okay, <laughs> because of the clock here, I, I think you've done, you know, given enough to like so people can understand the orthodox understanding of Riemann's rearrangement theorem. I really love, by the way, again, that, that first PowerPoint one you did. Like for me, I think that was the, I, I know you said, said so much more, but like <laughs> that, it clicked with me. I got what you were saying and how, oh yeah, I can see how you got to be careful with these things. Now, we did talk about the academy being corrupt. I'm not expecting you to do anything to get you in trouble or, or so, but are you... Even in mathematics, are you going that far or or not? Well, no, the the only, I know we got the clock, but I, I just want to make one more statement, though. Sure, about, sure go ahead. Yeah. About throwing out infinite sets versus keeping infinite sets, but pruning some of the things on which mm-hmm. we concentrate, which is that the thing that people need to realize is that the field of possibility of computation is infinite. If I hand you a data set, there's an infinite number of calculations you can do with that. So, for instance, you could... Now, typically what you do is, you know, you get like the five number summary, min, max, average, median, that sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. But why instead don't you take the product of all the numbers in there, look at the cosine of it, add 54 and exponentiate it? You could just as easily Well, if you're Paul Krugman trying to show that inflation is down under Biden, that's what you do. <laughs> right, exactly. And so the answer is that Steve made this point that the computers are doing the real math, but that's not true. Computers are doing the arithmetic. Mathematics, when you're doing mathematics, you are trying to figure out the computations which are meaningful and the ones which are not. And so due to the clock, I won't get into it. But my claim is that when you retain infinite sets, but sort of pay attention to all these certain areas, certain results that come out of that, you are able to do mathematics that programs the computers or that informs how you program the computers. And you do not get that otherwise. And so probably the easiest example of that would be something like the central limit theorem. It's like, why do you mm-hmm. compute the sample mean answer? Strong level large number says it converges, which is an infinite process. It converges to the mean of the population and the distribution of it is normal. And of course the normal mm-hmm. distribution makes use of both pi and E <laughs> mm-hmm. without these inf- ideas that you get from infinite sets. What is the meaning of the computation? It's mere computation at that point. There's no way to distinguish one computation from another. And that's what mathematics gives you. It gives you the ability to distinguish among computations. Okay. All right. Okay. So, I mean, I, I don't think Steve would disagree that mathematics, like the theory of math, is what's guiding to say, why are we adding up these numbers and not these ones? Or why are we not turning on the zeros and ones in this pattern versus that? Like, what does it mean? Right. And like, you got to have the antecedent theory. So I think he probably would agree there. He would just truncate though. What's the acceptable range of the theory that it talk or the domain of the theory. And you're going to say, he could try. Like, there's so <laughs> many, there's so many practical things we can't do. If you don't let me use infinite sets, Correct. including like you're saying, 
what do we even mean by pie and E? Well, including the most basic results for the sample meat. Sample meat is one of the most mm -hmm. basic statistical computations, but you can't say anything about it if you don't allow for infinite sets and in in their consequences. Okay. So no, okay. The, only, the only thing I was going to say about the Academy is, is I'm not saying that the Academy is corrupt. I'm saying what you guys observed. Well, well we, that's what we were saying. Like, so in terms right. of the going through, and so, yeah, so what's your commentary on that part of no, our No, my discussion? commentary on that's very basic. It is simply that I think what you guys were observing is not a function of the Academy. I think that what you were observing is a function of humanity. <laughs> All you're, I mean, because really what you have is you have... Are you saying that professors are people? <laughs> I'm saying, in the words of Depeche Mode, that people are people, and that mm -hmm. you will find sloth and snobbery wherever you go. Snobbery is just an absence of charity, and sloth is when you haven't done your homework. I, like you, have gone through classes, because you were talking about the, you were making a point about the class that you took on, I think it was, you were, you were looking at game theory and Nash equilibrium or something like that. The, you know, you kept asking the professor, what's the meaning of this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't tell you. And look, it's not like I haven't had professors who get up there they're whipping their chalk back and forth. And I go, wait a minute, how'd you make that move? And it's deer in the headlights. I had those professors too. But that's mm -hmm. just that's just your run-of-the-mill sloth. <laughs> and you yeah. know, Well, to be fair, the, the guy that I was asking, he was a deep thinker. It was just he didn't care. Like, it's just mm -hmm. not how he was thinking about it. You know what I mean? Like, so sure. it wasn't that he was lazy. Or so it was just to him, like, what do you mean? What does it mean? I'm just telling you that's what, right. you know, <laughs> let's come on. You know, so. Well, okay, I, so go ahead. Well, no, that, I, that was just my, my, mm. my point about all that stuff is that it's incumbent on every person, every student to, and, and again, if you're going to act on information, you need to verify it. If I go to the bar and I talk to the guy next to me and he says he's a brain surgeon, I'm not going to check and see if he is. I'm just going to assume that what he's saying, that he's telling the truth for the sake of conversation. But if I need brain surgery, you better believe I'm going to check up on his credentials. And similarly mm. for the academy is that you're going to have good professors, you're going to have bad professors, you're going to have snobs, you're going to have nice people, you're going to have thorough guys. I worked with some great guys in my graduate training, and I worked with some sloppy people who, when you would ask them a question, especially in undergrad, and they'd go to the back of the book, and you're like, dude, <laughs> mm -hmm. you're not filling me with confidence here. And so I, I suppose my injunction to people is just to remember that, yeah, Professors are people too, and it's incumbent on the student, just like anywhere else, caveat emptor, to vet these people and to, the reason you get an education is because you want to act on that knowledge. So it's incumbent on you to verify that knowledge, trust and verify. That's all. That's all I wanted to say about the academy. Okay. I think we got about five minutes left. Sure. <laughs> I would, of the stuff you said, we're having to skip some of it. That's it's porous. You're yes. You have like the, you sent the real outline and we're just hitting the rationals. So the part about Steve had suggested that, Oh, like the solution, you know, there's all these pair, like Zeno's paradox. And yep. here I am at the starting line and the finish lines over there. And, but before I get to the finish line, I got to get to the halfway point. But before I, I and he's yep. saying, if you just assume space is discrete, Right. It all goes away. All these problems. So see, like these mathematicians are just loading us up with paradox and nonsense yep. and everything just makes so much more sense. It's intuitive and we can solve practical real world problems yep. if we just assume finite things, including the, the idea that space itself is finite. Sure. Which after all, isn't that what quantum mechanics tells us? Right. Sure. Okay. So I'll, yeah, I can address that very briefly. And well, for one thing, I'm not going to comment on quantum mechanics because I've never taken a course in it. So okay. that's that. But with respect to 
Zeno's paradox. I don't know why people get so bent out of shape about Zeno's paradox. I'm going to solve it for you very quickly here. So here it is. So suppose it's noon and you're traveling at a constant speed of 60 miles an hour and you have to traverse 120 miles. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Zeno would say, well, you're going to do half the distance and half the remaining distance and so on. And there, and thus you never get there. That's his paradox, right? Mm -hmm. it, it makes undergraduates head, heads explode. Well, the solution to that is really simple. My question to Zeno is, well, what happens at two o'clock? You're going, it's noon, you're going 60 miles an hour. You need to traverse 120 miles. What happens at two o'clock? What Zeno fails to take into account is that traveling half the remaining distance takes half of the remaining time. And so traveling half the remaining distance, the distance from the starting point took an hour traveling half the remaining distance of that took half an hour trailing half the remaining distance of that took 15 minutes and so on. So all that Zeno is really observing is that you're not going to get there before two o'clock, but we already knew that in the okay. words, in the words of George Carlin, all destinations are final. If you haven't gotten yeah. to where you're going, you aren't there yet. And the, the, the solution to Zeno's paradox is simply to remember that there's a time element to it. And so that each one of his halves, each time he halves the distance, he's also having the time. Mm -hmm. But two o'clock comes eventually. The reason why I find it, it's so, I guess we don't need to make a comment about reality. And that's what, that was something that I thought was sort of unnecessary on Patterson's point part was that mathematics is just, it's straight, it's straight uh, deductive philosophy you know, with quantity as its first abstraction. Steve's trying to solve a, an intellectual problem by making a statement about reality itself. I'm not making any statements about reality. I'm simply saying that um, pondering certain ideas allow me to act in a fashion which produces useful results. That's all. Let me just try once more with the Zenos thing just to make sure I'm getting what, what you're... So the, the classical statement of the problem is, yeah, for me to get from here over there, I first have to cross the halfway point. Mm -hmm. But before I can do that, I got to cross the one-fourth point. But before I do that, one the, the one... And so it looks like there's an infinite number of things I need to do. Yep. And so how can I do an infinite number of things? Yep. So it's a paradox because we know I can walk from here over there. Yes. Like we know that it happens. And so right. the way Steve wants to solve that is to say, it's, no, at some point, like when you get down to, you know, the smallest discrete unit of space like it's just no it's just you can't refine you can't, it. You can't subdivide it further it's just right. you're either here or you're there yeah and then you know so there's a finite number of positions you know without taking too strong a stand on you know what are the constituents of matter and stuff like that right but the, if space itself is finite then that that's the way he would solve it and so it's, he'd say at some point you can't subdivide it anymore and then just you're either here or you're there yep and you know you can talk about well how do things move I don't know, but it's not that there's an infinite number of things you need to do. Right. And I've heard other explanations solve it and just say, why can't you do an infinite number of things in a finite time? Who said you can't do that? Yeah, I'm just saying something much uh, more basic. So what, are you, so what are you saying? I'm, so, I'm saying something much more basic than that. It, all I'm saying is that all Zeno is really observing is that the finite sums of the sequence, one half plus one fourth plus one eighth, are mm -hmm. less than one. And so therefore, you're not going to traverse the whole distance. That's a true statement. But my point is just to bring into account, take into account the fact that there's time, there's a time element. And mm -hmm. so again, the, the, the basic sort of algebra problem, right? If at 
it's noon, you're traveling 60 miles an hour, you need to traverse 120 miles. Okay. Zeno says you're gonna you're gonna do 60 of those and 30 of those and 15 and so on. Mm-hmm. And my point is, well, the first 60 is gonna take an hour, the next 30 is gonna take half an hour, the next 15 is gonna take 15 minutes, the next seven and a half is gonna take seven and a half minutes, and so on. But eventually two o'clock comes. Oh, oh okay. I think I get it. So you're <laughs> taking what his challenge is to be is to say you're gonna get closer and closer and closer, but you're never gonna quite get there. But and you're then, shrinking your time interval. Right. But you're salute. Yeah. So the way you're, ex- so, okay. Whereas the way I've heard the paradox stated is more like you can't even get started. So it's not that you're going to get arbitrarily close to the end goal, but you, oh, Eight. shoot, you keep having further milestones you got to hit. It's more right. like, how do you even get, take a step? Because before you take one step, you got to take half a step. You know what I mean? So it's like, oh, yeah, I guess there's an infinite, on that there's an infinite number of waves hitting you that you can't even. <laughs> so again, with all this stuff, we know it's not correct. Like, right. cause you can walk and yeah. you can get somewhere. Well, but, uh, but, but the again, answer is like, what's the solution? But, yeah. but, but, but for your, but the way you've set it up there, what that means then is that no time is taking, is progressing. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So, so it's, yeah. it's true. If no time progresses, you haven't taken a step. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I do like that. That might even have some implications with praxeology. I'll have to, I'll have to think about that. I do like that. Yeah. You're right. So you know, what you're kind of saying is, yeah, they're just right. If they slow down the can, you know, you're like, Whoa, right, yeah. you're not moving. No, you're not moving. If we slow down the yeah. passage of time, exactly. If you, right. if you keep, if you keep slicing up time, finer and finer. Yeah. yeah I don't know what to tell yeah. you. They can't do anything in zero time. Right. Right. Okay. Well, we are out of time, folks. And so thank you for listening. So thank you so much for your time, Ian. This was fascinating and not the -the run-of-the-mill podcast episode, I'm sure, by anybody's imagination. And by the way, just while you, I did look it up and it's, yeah, it's the Ramanujan summation. One plus two plus blah, blah, blah equals negative one-twelfth. I'll I'll send it to you if you want. Okay, yeah, yeah. Ian, so obviously, again, they do some tricks. Like, what do we mean? But sure. Okay. All right. Well, thank you again, Ian, for your time. Thank you folks for tuning in and listening to this unorthodox podcast, but I'm sure we all took away something valuable and interesting. See you next time, everybody. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.